You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale continues our Grace is Greater sermon series with a message on grace greater than our wounds. Thank you for joining us, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. Well, good morning. Thank you, Debbie and Brenda, for, for worshiping through your talents that God has given you. We survived our first Glendale days yesterday, and I'll say it was not... Oh, thank you. I don't know that that's applause-worthy, but, but it was not as bad as we were told it was going to be. Uh, we, we were prepared for the worst, and it was not as bad. I only took two cousins over parking, and, uh, and so I thought that was pretty good. And, Right, that, that I was parking, yeah. Um, and so big thanks to Sherry for all of her, her hard work in getting that ready. And I also want to say thanks to Chris and his team for uh, taking care of the parking for, for uh, our parking lots. They raised, I think, around $3,300 yesterday for the youth. And so um, all of the people that were involved in that, uh, just thank you for being a part of that and, and giving your day at least a portion of your day, to, to be a part of that. It was a good day for the Glendale community, but it was also a good day for Glendale Christian Church. And so uh, we're very thankful for that. Mike, stand up for just a minute. Come on, I don't have all days. So come on. <laughs> so Mike was real good last week to bring all the staff down and introduce all of us and our spouses and uh, just to say a thank you. But he left out one very... <laughs> I love this guy. I didn't plan on this. He left out one really important person, and that was himself. Um, Mike has been called a lot of things around here, and I've heard what some of you all call him. But the one thing that I would call him is the glue. He's kind of the glue that holds everything together. And so... uh, just as part of clergy appreciation, we just want to appreciate you for a moment. Love you, bro. That's the second time that's happened today in service. If you were here in first service, I got a little emotional during that. and I'm an emotional guy, and you'll just have to get used to it. You'll just have to deal with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are a few things I will apologize. That's not one of them. Um, so we're getting into our uh, sermon today, our message, and uh, we're continuing in our theme, our series, Grace is Greater. And today we're going to be dealing with grace that is more healing than your wounds. Now, I have a little personal confession to make, a a lifestyle kind of confession to make. Of the two of us, Christy is by far and away the one who is much more organized and neat. I am not a neat freak. It will never be said at my funeral that Adam Hale was a neat freak. It's not one of the things that people will say about me. Um, I, I work really hard at being average, at being organized and kind of knowing where things are. I live in the world of controlled chaos. That's my world. I live there. I like it. I like not knowing where everything is all the time and having to look for 30 minutes to find my keys when they're in my pocket and and 
and talking to my dad on the phone, and he says, what's, go- what are you, what's so distracting you? And I said, I can't find my phone. And he says, you dummy. Um, and that's happened several times. Um, Christy does not operate in that world. She is not that way at all. She is very neat and meticulous and organized, and she knows where things are. And, and she gets very aggravated with me and our two boys because that's just not the way we operate. And so occasionally, Christy will get the itch to just start going through stuff. She'll go through a closet or through the, uh, the boys' toys that they haven't played with in a long time. And when she gets that itch, nothing is safe. I mean, nothing is safe from that trash can. When we were moving, we were in the process of moving, I mean, it made it a lot easier to move because she threw away half of our stuff. But... I would, I would say, all right, I need to pack this. I, I'm going to take this up with me today. And she'll say, she said, I threw that away two months ago. I don't know what, what you're looking for. That, it's gone. And so, so when that urge strikes her, nothing is off limits. In 2011, there was a book that was released, and it was called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, subtitled The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. And it was written by a lady named Mariah Kondo. Now, first I just want to say that that book title needs some tidying up and some decluttering. If I saw that on the bookshelf, I wouldn't read it because it would take me longer to read the title than it would to actually read the book. And so I I just wouldn't do it. And this is not a book that I want anywhere near my house because Christy would read this book and then we'd have nothing left. She would have thrown all the stuff away. But Kondo explains in the book, or the premise of the book, is that Tidying up is life-changing magic. And that decluttering is, is an art form. That's what she says in the book, or that's the premise of the book. And she explains in the book that the key to cleaning out your closet is knowing exactly what you want to keep and then getting rid of everything else. Now, that sounds simple enough, right? You, just, you, you keep what you want and you get rid of what you don't want. But she, see, she says that there's a, there's a question that you ask to determine what it is that you want to keep and what it is that you need to get rid of. And so she says, if you're cleaning out your closet, you go and you pick up each item. You go through every item in your closet one at a time, and you hold that item up and you look at it, and you say, item, do you strike joy? And if it does, you keep it. And if you don't, you throw it out. Now that sounds kind of funny to me, because I can just see myself going through my closet and picking up a shirt and looking at the shirt and saying, shirt, do you strike joy? And if I did that, I would have no clothes left because clothes don't strike joy for me. And so then there's a whole other problem that we'll have to deal with. But, but that's what she says that you, you do to keep it. And while that's kind of funny to me, the idea that someone would do that is, is funny to me. It is, it is a good reminder, however, of how we become attached to emotions especially emotions like anger and resentment we we store them in the closets of our heart even though that they don't bring us joy instead they do the exact opposite of bring us joy they they rob us of peace still we just can't seem to let those things go and over the years our anger and resentment they start to pile up it's time to clean out our closets and for most of us There's a lot that we need to get rid of. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, 
verse 31, he says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every other form of malice. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Just get rid of it. Don't you wish it was just that easy to get rid of it? Just say, okay, I'm going to get rid of all my anger today, and it's gone. I'm just going to get rid of it. But it's not that easy, is it? Getting rid of bitterness and anger can be painful. It's easier just to shut the door of the closet and pretend that everything is fine and open it up only when absolutely necessary. This morning I want to invite you to clean out your closet and deal with some of the hurt that other people have caused you. And it's been my experience that extending grace and forgiveness to someone who doesn't deserve it and can't make it right is more than just a decision that we take, that we make. It's a journey that we take. Someone once said that every journey begins with a single step. And if the grace journey is a journey that you want to take, then the first step is deciding that you want to make the journey. Or at least that you're willing to try. There is no magic button that will, that will erase all the painful memories. There is no, uh, no magic button that we can push that will heal all the festering wounds. There is no easy button that we get to push like there is in the Staples commercial. There's just not that button that works for us that way. It's a difficult journey. And it begins with a willingness to forgive, even if forgiveness seems like too much to ask. For many of you, you have been deeply hurt by someone else. And it's not that you want to continue living with those wounds or carrying around anger and bitterness. Who wants to carry around that kind of stuff? Who wants to be angry and bitter all the time? Nobody does. It's not that you want to do those things. It's that giving grace doesn't feel like an option. Maybe you would put it this way. You would say, I've been hurt too badly. Or maybe it sounds like this for you. You don't know what I've been through. Or not after what she's done to me. Or he has destroyed my life. Or it's too painful to even think about. Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you've done the math and you reached the conclusion that, that the hurt that was done to you is greater than the grace that you're able to give. One pastor recounted an email that he received after preaching a message about forgiveness. It came from a woman that was then in her mid-50s and she had been married to a man at 19 years old. The man was verbally and physically abusive to her. And after hearing just a couple of her stories, the pastor said that he was ready to grab the baseball bat and go deal with the ex-husband himself. She had been married to the man for 12 years before finally being able to escape. And for the past several decades, she had been consumed with bitterness and anger and rage. Not because she wanted to, but because of after everything that she had been through, it just seemed like her only option. And so she sent this email to her, to her preacher. This is what it said. She writes, I wake up every day and feel like my hate for him is going to suffocate me. I never considered that anything other than that was possible. Not after what he did to me. There was so much pain for so long that my bitterness left no room for even the possibility of grace. Because it seemed impossible, I had never thought about whether I wanted to forgive him or not. But I have been overcome by the realization that I had never even tried to forgive him. In fact, I had never even considered that God would want me to. She closes with this. I still don't know that it's possible. But I'm ready to at least try. 
You see, that's the first step in this journey of grace. A willingness to forgive. Even if it doesn't seem possible to make the equation work. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of an unmerciful servant that that He tells us that to help us understand not just the greatness of grace that we have received, but the greatness of grace that we are to give. And here's what we discover about grace. We discover that in this parable that grace is only grace if it goes both ways. Grace is a two-way street. Receiving it from God but refusing to give it to others is not an option because grace flows. Grace can't, can't just go one way and stop. It has to go both ways. Grace is a two-way street. And Peter comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 with a very generic question. But I bet in this generic question, in fact, I'm, I'm convinced of it, that there is a specific issue involved in this question. And so, he write, so Peter asks this question in Matthew 18, 21. He says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter presents a math problem and an equation to solve. And the question is this, is grace greater than the offense that has been repeatedly done to me? Is grace greater than the thing that has happened to me over and over and over again? Is grace greater than the, than the hurt that this person has caused me this many times? So Peter asks, how many times do I have to forgive a person who hurts me? And he even makes a guess at the right answer, seven. And he probably thinks that when he says seven times that he's being very gracious. After all, the Jewish rabbis, they taught that you only had to forgive a person three times. If someone wronged you three times, you had to forgive them three times. But after that third time, if they wronged you a fourth time, all bets were off. And you were perfectly within your rights and God wouldn't hold it against you if you hated them and held held that uh, offense against them for the rest of your life. You were okay after the fourth time. And so Peter thinks he's being very gracious when he says seven. Seven times, is that good enough, Lord? I believe or I imagine that he's expecting Jesus to commend him for his such graciousness attitude, his gracious attitude. You know, I I just picture Peter's probably thinking that Jesus is just going to say, Peter, man, that's so good. Seven times, that's so gracious. Disciples, why can't you be like Peter? Peter, all the other disciples, they need to be more like you. But That's not what happened, is it? Perhaps Peter had someone in mind when he asked this question. In fact, I believe he did. I bet there was a specific person that he had in mind when he asked this question. Lord, how many times do I have to forgive this person? There was someone, there was a specific face, there was a specific story that came to mind when he asked this question. I I am absolutely convinced that this was not just a generic theological question. This was a very specific question with a specific person, a specific story in mind. And for some of you, when you hear this question, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive them? There's a specific person that comes to your mind. There's a specific story. There's someone in your life that has hurt you repeatedly, time and time again. They have offended you multiple times, and you think, how much is too much? Lord, where do I get to draw that line? And Jesus answers Peter's question, He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times 7. And it's not that Jesus is saying 77 times, or that He's even saying 490 times. He's pointing to the chalkboard and He's saying, in the equation, grace is always greater. Every time someone offends you, every time someone hurts you, forgiveness and grace is always greater than what they've done to you. That's the answer to the equation. That's how you solve the equation. Grace is always 
greater. And let me just pause here for a moment and, and acknowledge that some of you may be feeling a little bit defensive. And I don't mean to sound dismissive. If I'm coming across that way, I don't mean to be dismissive. Because I don't know your stories. I don't know what's been done to you. I don't know how you've been hurt. I don't know the, the depth of your betrayal that you've experienced. I don't know those things yet. But I do know this. I do know that grace is always greater. And maybe you're willing to accept that. Maybe on some level, intellectual level, you're willing to accept that, that grace is greater. You want to believe that grace is greater. But emotionally, emotionally the equation just doesn't work for you. The abuse or the abandonment was just too painful. And as much as you want to, to get rid of that infection of bitterness, it just doesn't feel like forgiveness is possible. And so my question, for those of you that feel that way, that you just don't think forgiveness is possible, are you at least willing to try? I'm not saying you have to get to that conclusion today. But are you at least willing to try? Jesus understands how difficult this equation can, can be. And so He ter- tells a parable that, that helps us to motivate our willingness to try. And so He begins the parable in verse 23. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. We're introduced to a high-power CEO type of person who decides it's time to collect, all, to collect all from those who owe him. And so he takes a look at his books and, and we're told in verse 24 that there's a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold and the man was brought to him. Now I don't know about you, I don't know how many bags of gold that you might have, but that's a lot of bags of gold. In fact, it's roughly the equivalent of $150 million today. In Jesus' day, it might have been about ten times the national budget. It was an astronomical figure that probably had his audience laughing. No master would have ever loaned out this amount of money, and no servant would ever be able to repay back this amount of money. And so people kind of laughed at this idea. Jesus uses the hyperbole to to make the point that it's a debt that the man would never be able to repay. And Jesus continues... In verse 25 he says, Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? The man realizes that this, the master realizes that this guy's never going to be able to pay him back, and so he decides to auction off everything that he owns. Even the people, his family, the, the husband, the wife, and the kids are all auctioned off and sold into slavery. That seems pretty harsh to us. We go, man, who would do such a thing? But it wasn't unfair and it wasn't really all that harsh in those days. That's exactly what was expected to happen. That was exactly what kind of treatment was expected to happen to anyone who could not repay a debt. This parable, it's meant to reflect our standing with God. We are called in to give an account. And He's been keeping track and we are all guilty. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We are all guilty. We have sinned and we have racked up a debt and we can never repay it. And you can live in denial and pretend that you don't owe God anything. You can justify the debt or even dismiss it by comparing it to others. Or perhaps you can even own that you owe a huge debt. And you decide that somehow you're going to work it off. You're going to pay it back. Problem is, you can't. The debt's too big. You owe too much. You can't pay it back. 
And Jesus begins this parable with an image of God opening up His books and calling all of us in to give an account. And it's a reminder that apart from Jesus, we are all in huge debt to God. And so the servant, knowing nothing else to do, falls on his knees before the, man, before the master. In verse 26 it says, Be patient with me, he begged. The servant's begging. And he says, I will pay back everything. Now, the master knows that the servant probably has good intentions, but he also knows that that will never happen. Good intentions are, are exactly that. They are good intentions. They are not good actions. They are nothing more than intentions. And the servant, the master realizes that the servant has good intentions, but he understands that the debt is too large. He'll never be able to pay this back. But incredibly, the master takes pity on him. In verse 27, Jesus tells us that the master cancels the debt and lets him go. The master forgives the whole debt. This servant owes $150 million, but the master erases it from the book. It's an incredible act of grace. The master doesn't just extend the note or lower the monthly payments. He completely erases it altogether. And as significant as the debt was, the master's grace was greater. But then, then something happens. Something kind of disturbing happens. Not kind of disturbing. Something very disturbing happens. Verse 28 says, when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. This servant, who was just forgiven a hundred and fifty million dollar debt, finds a co-worker who owes him roughly twenty dollars. And he begins to choke him and demand repayment. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Those words sound familiar? Because it's the same words that this other servant had just, asked, had just said to the master. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. And don't miss this, because he is being asked for the same grace that he received. He's, the servant is using the same words that this other servant has said. Be patient with me and I will pay everything back. He's being asked for the same grace that he received, only to a much lesser degree. Now, if you've never heard this story, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this story, what do you think would happen? Of course, this guy's going to forgive the debt, right? I mean, he's just been forgiven a $150 million debt, a debt that he could never repay unless he won the lottery or something like that, and bad news for him, they didn't have the Powerball then. So, he knows he can't pay this debt back. Of course, this guy is going to show the same grace and mercy that was shown to him, right? I mean, he can't do anything but. Verse 30. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Wow. And what happens next is easy to miss in this story. But don't overlook this because, in fact, I think this is one of the most important parts of this story. of What happens next? Verse 31 says, When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. The other servants of the master, they are the ones who report the unforgiving servant to the master. They saw how much grace he had received and how much he had refused to give. And they were outraged. Now, why were they outraged? 
I mean, it wasn't their debt. They didn't know, owe anybody any money. They, it wasn't any of their business. Shouldn't they have just minded their own business? That's what we would say, right? You keep your nose out of my business. I'll deal with it the way I want to. That's what we think. That's what we would expect. But here's why they were outraged. Because they live in this community of grace together with this master who doesn't treat them as a servant but treats them as sons and daughters. They live with this master who is known for extreme benevolence. And so when one of their own who has been on the receiving end of that grace, on the receiving end of that benevolence, refuses to give the grace that he's just received, the community is outraged. And that's an appropriate response when someone in a community violates the core value of that community. That's an appropriate response. So let's dig just a little deeper. The fellow servants, they're outraged when a member of their community doesn't show grace. So they tell their master on him. And don't miss this. In the middle of this story about grace, we find a lack of grace for the, for the person who is not gracious. This story about grace, we find a lack of grace for the person who isn't gracious. And that seems counterintuitive to us. It seems like that would be a contradiction, but it's not. Did you ever notice that in all the encounters that Jesus has with people who are caught in sin, He shows extreme grace to them, radical grace He offers to them. Everyone who's caught in sin. Think about this for a moment. We talked about it last, a couple weeks ago. The woman at the well who's caught in sin. She's, she's living this life that, that she knows she shouldn't be living. Jesus offers her grace. The woman who was caught in adultery. Now let this sink in for just a minute. There weren't rumors about her being caught, about her having an affair. She was caught in adultery. Let that sink in for just a minute. Jesus offers her grace. Peter, when he, when he denies Jesus and he's, he's caught in, deni- in this denial, Jesus offers him grace. Every time Jesus encounters someone who is caught in some sort of sin, he offers them radical grace except for one group of people. The Pharisees, whose sin was not being gracious. The Pharisees were the most legalistic group of people that we could imagine. And they they did not believe in grace. They did not offer grace. And Jesus offers grace to everyone except them. Because the Pharisees violated the core value of the community, the the grace community. And when someone in our community violates the core value, then that community just can't ignore that. We cannot ignore when someone it refuses to be gracious, especially when we see the amount of grace that's been given to them. Today, the church is Jesus' community. We are the community of Christ. And as our leader demonstrated and through his actions and, and reinforced with his teachings, our core value is grace. Our churches should be flooded with grace. We should be marked by grace. If there's something that should be said about the church, it should be that they are full of grace. And so when one of our own refuses to be gracious, there should be outrage and deep sadness. We should be outraged when people in our church community do not offer grace to other people. And it should sadden us. It should grieve us. And here's my concern. My concern is that often the church is known for its outrage toward people outside of the community who need grace rather than outrage for people inside our community who refuse to give it. In other words, there's a whole world of people out there who need grace. And and the church is often known for what we are against. And that's okay, we need to be against some things. But we should never be against giving grace. 
And oftentimes we are known for our outrage against people who need grace. We've got to stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians, okay? It, it makes no sense for them to act like Christians. Non-Christians are not going to act like Christians. So we, sh- we should just stop expecting that, okay? And instead of, of telling them how wrong they are, we've got to be gracious toward them. And we need to show grace to them because we can't just be known for our outrage against them when so many within our own walls, within our own community, refuse to be gracious. That's what should outrage us. Since grace is to be our most defining attribute, a person who is a Christian, who doesn't live a grace-giving life, should, should shock and grieve us. Imagine someone who's given their life to a peacekeeping organization. They have spent their entire life working for this organization. They, they have gone on countless trips. They've raised uh, n- numerous amounts of dollars. They have, they have worked tirelessly to promote peace within this organization for, for peace all over the world. And then it's found out that on their day off, they make bombs for terrorist organizations. That's hard to even imagine, isn't it? Because it makes no sense. Because no one would violate that core value of peace that worked for them. And if they did, and it was found out, there would be outrage from those people involved in that peacekeeping organization. They would be outraged because a member of their community violated a core value of their community. I'm afraid that that's what's happened to many people in the church over the years. There are three groups of people that I think make up uh, just society in general. They're the unchurched, there's the underchurched, and the dechurched. And this is a dechurched group is, is one that I, I specifically think this happens to. They, at one time, they were, they were a part of the church, or they at least had a favorable opinion of the church. And something happened. Something, somebody did something, something happened, and for some reason they missed the grace of God, and a bitter root began to grow. Remember what our, our theme verse for this series is, it's Hebrews twelve fifteen, It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile any. Because that's, what's happen- that's what happens when we miss grace. A bitter root begins to grow, and these de-churched people, Something has happened to them. They, they were a part of the church or they, they, they at least were favorable to the church. Something happened. Something was said to them. They, they missed grace. Grace wasn't extended to them and they missed grace and they left. And a bitter root began to grow. And now, all Christians, they see all Christians in all, in all churches in the same way. And they have no use for them. And that's a tragedy. And that should grieve us that somehow, some way, we let people miss grace. There's a, there's a ministry called Love in Action that deals with certain addictions. And in their meetings, when someone speaks and someone else in the group has felt the same way or has struggled with the same thing, they raise their hand. The people in the, in the audience, they raise their hand. If, if I'm telling a story and whatever my addiction is and whatever my struggle is, someone else recognizes that in their own life, they raise their hand. And it just stays up while the, while the person's talking. Love in action has a principle that no one ever struggles alone. And that's what needs to happen in churches so that no one misses the grace of God. People need us to raise a hand instead of pointing fingers, but we're really good at pointing fingers. We've got to stop that. 
We've got to stop pointing fingers all the time and start raising hands and be honest and transparent with people and let people know that, hey, we're messed up too. We're not perfect. We don't have it all together. We, we struggle with the same things that they struggle with. That's the only response that makes sense in a community of grace filled with people who have to rely on forgiveness to get into the community. Do you realize that? The only way that you get into this community is to rely on grace and forgiveness. Some of you, or someone you know, has been choked by someone in the community who wanted to receive grace from the Master but, but was refused. And so for, for those of you who have grown up in a community who violated this, this core value, I want to take just a moment and apologize on behalf of the community because that's not the way it's supposed to work. To the teenage girl who got pregnant and endured all the judgmental stares to only be told that she couldn't come back to youth group, the group that she needed the most during that time. I'm sorry. To the man who, who wasn't allowed to be a part of the community because of a divorce from his past sorry to the parolee who opened up about his past mistakes and was told he was no longer welcome I'm sorry to the addict who was finally honest about his addictions but instead of support he received shame I'm sorry to each person who has ever been hurt by this community that is supposed to represent Jesus the church community I'm sorry when someone in our community wants to receive grace from the Master, but is refused grace, or even refuses to attempt to give grace to someone who has hurt them, the community should be outraged and saddened. And that's what happens in this story. The Master finds out that this guy who has received incredible grace is now refusing to give it. And so in verses 32 through 34, this is what we read. The master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Hmm. Oftentimes when Jesus would tell a parable, the takeaway is a little vague. Sometimes he would, he would leave it hanging out there for people uh, just to to wonder about what, what the implication might be. Sometimes it's a little ambiguous, but not here. Jesus makes it very clear about the takeaway from this parable. He makes it very clear what He wants known. And this is what He says in verse 35. He says, This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. And I know some of you immediately push back on that. You say, what? You're telling me that I... That if I don't forgive the person who has hurt me, who abused me, who betrayed me, who cheated me, who abandoned me, you're telling me that God won't forgive me? No, no, that's, I'm not saying that. I'm just simply telling you what Jesus has said. Jesus made it clear that you cannot receive God's grace and then refuse to give it to others. If God's forgiven your sins, you can't continue to keep, keep track and holding on to the sins of others. If you do, you will hold on to that bitterness and, it, and that hurt will become hatred and it will spread and it will poison you and, and you will become bitter and you run the risk of missing grace altogether. Look, I know it's not fair. I know that person hurt you and they owe you something. 
Maybe they owe you a childhood. Maybe they owe you a marriage or money. Or at the very least, they owe you an explanation. It's not fair to let it go. It's not right. I know. It's grace. And I know this too. I know that you'll never be asked to give more grace than you've already received. Please, please don't think that I am minimizing what, you, what has happened to you, what you've been through. I'm not. And neither does Jesus. But the more that we learn about the righteousness and the holiness of God, the more this truth begins to sink in. Most of us probably grew up being taught that if we hurt someone, if we offended someone, we should, it was our job to make it right. We should go to them. We should apologize. We should say, I'm sorry. And that's a good lesson to teach kids. Kids should do their best to make things right. But it develops into an unbiblical approach to forgiveness and to grace. Because I've come to this conclusion that when someone hurts me, forgiveness only happens when that person who hurt me makes it right. Forgiveness will only happen when they come to me and they tell me that I'm sorry or they do something to make it right. Then I will forgive them. The problem is is that that's not grace. It's not. Besides, what do you do when, when you're hurt so badly that nothing can be said or nothing can be done to make it right? What do you do then? And some of you know exactly what I mean. You've been hurt badly enough that you are painfully aware there is nothing that they could say or do to make things right. What do you do then? Well, that's exactly the position you and I were in with God when He extended His grace to us through Jesus. We could do nothing. We could say nothing. There was no possibility of us making it right. God gave us His Son and it was grace. Jesus said the Master canceled the debt. He didn't just extend the note or make it interest only. He erased it completely. And that's what grace has done for us. It's not earned. With grace, the person doesn't fix the consequences of their sin. It would be nice if they did, but with grace, the person does not, does not fix the consequences of their sin. We live with their consequences of their sin. It's not fair. It's not even right. But it's exactly what Jesus did for us. The Master has canceled our debt. And it's time for us to let that grace flow. It's not easy, but with God it's possible. So here's what I want you to do this morning. I want to ask you to begin to stop thinking about what's been done to you. Stop thinking about what's been done to you. And start thinking about what's been done for you. Every time the pain of what's been done to you gets triggered, intentionally start thinking about what God has done for you. Because what God's done for you is greater than what's been done to you. Because grace is always greater, no matter what. Even, even when someone has done something to hurt us, grace is always greater. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And it's a, it's, a, it's a time to reflect and to respond. And oftentimes we call for people to come forward. Let me just tell you, if you want to take this step of grace to begin this journey of grace, to extend grace to someone, you don't have to come forward. You can make that decision right where you're, right where you're going to be standing. You can make that decision right now. 
And that's the decision that we all have to make. We're, either, we're, we're all going to make a decision. We're either going to or we're not going to. We're going to extend grace or we're not going to extend grace. But if you don't extend grace, don't call it grace because grace flows. Okay? Grace flows. So this morning, are you willing to begin that first step in the process of just being, of just saying, yeah, I'm going to try. That's all we're asking for. That's all Jesus is asking for, is just that we would try. We would try. And then we'll, we'll move in a little further into this journey of grace and forgiveness. But the first step is to try. Hey, thank you for being here this morning. Your attendance uh, means a lot. Your presence means a lot. But more than anything else, church was not made for people that just come to church. Church was made for people who aren't here yet. And so this week you have an opportunity, wherever you're at in your community, whether it's work, school, home, whatever, you have an opportunity to extend grace to people there. And so we would encourage you to do that and bring somebody back with you next week. Again, thanks for being here. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we love you and we are thankful for, uh, for today, thankful for the opportunity to be here to worship together. Father, thank you for protecting stories like this throughout the history of time so that we can look back on it and we can see, uh, we can just see what grace, what the grace effect looks like. And so, Father, may we always be, be found to be gracious people. Lord, we know it's hard to forgive those people who have hurt us and who have done things to us. But, Lord, help us to always remember that we were once those people and you forgave us. And so, Father, we, we just ask that as we go through, the, through our week, that uh, we, would be, we would be gracious, that you would extend to us the ability to be gracious to those that we come in contact with because grace is always greater, no matter what. Father, we love you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.